0: Hello and welcome to this week's episode on the Alex Garland screenplay adaptation of the novel Never Let Me Go. As usual, we will be discussing the full scope of the story from the beginning to the end, so ideally you probably will prefer to have at least seen the film before listening, but we'll be giving you a detailed discussion of the differences between the original book and the film version, and if you don't mind finding out what happens, you're welcome to listen along. And hopefully we might convince you to give this book a read, because this was a beautiful, thought-provoking work, and I honestly think this has led to one of the best discussions we've had on the podcast to date. Thanks again for listening and continuing to support us. Now on to the episode. Hello, and welcome to The 21st Rewrite, the podcast about screenplays and the process of writing them. I'm William Coldwell, and I'm joined, as always, by my good friend and co-host, Alan
1: Vasquez. And today we are discussing the film Never Let Me Go directed by Mark Romanek, screenplay by Alex Garland, and it is based on the book by Kazuo Ishiguro. I guess I'll start by saying that I I haven't been this moved by a book in a really long time. And I think if you have not read the book, it's one of those for me personally, I would read the book first and then watch the film. It is a bit of a slow burn. There is seemingly not much happening in the first sort of 50 pages or so. But, I mean, if you stick around and it evolves into something that's just a very beautiful story and very introspective and profound in very unexpected ways. And I think the way the story unfolds in the book is very different the way it unfolds in the film. It's not entirely different. I think it's a very faithful adaptation, the film, to the book. But if I were to pick a way of experiencing this story, I would experience the book first, and then I would watch the film.
0: Yeah, it's it's really interesting that you said that. What my advice to the audience would be is you need to give it time, this book. You might have to slog through a couple of hours of reading and not really sensing where this is going. But there is a moment, and it's probably around page 80, page 90, that you start to realize that there's so much more below. The entire story is told in, from the first person point of view of Kathy. And so you're you're listening to this person recount their memories. So sometimes it can seem very non-linear. You're dipping in and out of memories and times and places.
1: Yeah, and it's almost like she's having a conversation with someone. There's a chronological order-ish, but she does tend to skip back and forth between her thoughts. So it's almost like we're reading into her diary, it feels. It's definitely got that level of intimacy and it's been giving you clues the entire time. It's uh, you don't realize your clues until it starts sort of coming together and you're like, oh, like little things that didn't seemingly mean anything before now have this sort of profound weight to them. And I think that's what was so brilliant about the book. So it's giving you all this subtext and you're storing it in your mind and you know when the story really starts to unfold it's going to call back all that subtext that you've already stored there but it's that's what makes it so powerful because it's been storing it or you've been storing it so profoundly while you're reading the book and I think that's why I would say read the book first because for me that was a very profound experience I like the film I think the film does the best that it can to be faithful to the book because I do think you can't really make that into a film you can't really capture what's in the book into a film it it, it would be very very i would love to see that but Mm -hmm. in the film that we have now i think it's probably as close as you probably can to make it um you you maybe
0: could do it if you had a an art house french director who had a 10 hour long film perhaps yeah yeah you definitely can't do it within the conventions of it one and a half hour two hour storytelling
1: i do have some suggestions which once we get into it i i there were some things that i was like well if they would have done this maybe they would have been able to capture this but we'll get into that once we start you know getting into the story and the differences between the book and the film
0: i have read one other book by kazuo Ishiguro, and that was the buried giant which is his his newest book Hmm. so That's the only familiarity I have with him as an author. And there's certainly a lot of problems with his his latest work. But in general, it seems that the main themes that he likes to address are the concepts of memory, perception, the way that different people experience the same event from from their own individual Mm. perspectives. And that is something that's going to be very hard to convey in a screenplay. There's these building blocks that the first part of the book is essentially setting all of these foundations that the later parts will build on and also the fact that it withholds so much information mm-hmm. from us whereas on the screen the intention is to explain to us who the characters are and what the world is immediately mm-hmm. which isn't necessarily a problem i think that is one of the aims of adaptation for the screen is to stop withholding that information
1: yeah yeah I think it's both, it's both effective and and not. I I'm very curious now. I wish I could go back in time. I wish I had a time machine to go back and just watch the film as a without reading the book and see how that experience would have been. But there is definitely some information that from the get go you get. The film starts with some titles saying there was some scientific breakthrough in the 50s and people are now living longer and there's no something along those lines.
0: Yeah, and that's not in the screenplay.
1: That's not in the screenplay, but I I thought that was intriguing because they didn't right away tell you who these kids were, why they were there. It just kind of was sort of like a keep this in mind while we're telling you the story. And I think that was a very interesting choice. I think it's intriguing enough for you to keep with it visually. And I think they were probably worried that it was going to be maybe a little bit too slow, that maybe not enough was happening that was going to intrigue the audience. So I can see why they would think from a screenwriting perspective, putting that at the front would keep you a little bit engaged. Because the question I would assume, because I did read the book, so I kind of knew why they put that there. But if I didn't know anything, I would assume that my response would be like, okay, but what does this have to do with the scientific breakthrough? I would already know there's a connection to that. So I think that was smart of them to keep an audience hooked. Mm -hmm. is my my take on that
0: so within the book what's happening is you are following this young woman telling these stories of her childhood and it isn't for a very long time that you realize that there was anything actually different about her childhood than anyone else's there's the initial few pages of course you do get from the first sentence that she's a carer that seems Mm -hmm. to be a job Mm -hmm. that has a different meaning to her than perhaps other people but there is such a profession as a carer, at mm-hmm. least in... It's the, the word they use in England for someone who works in a nursing home. Right. So we associate it more with taking care of the elderly. Mm. But then it's it's all about these things that seem to stand out and be a little bit strange. And you have to infer so much from the book about the conditions they live in, something that the screenplay tries to address Quite quickly is, for example, the sales that they have at the school. Mm-hmm. Alex Garland's version says very, very clearly that we can see this is all junk. This is all stuff that has no value. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you're hearing it from Kathy's perspective in the book, it means a it lot. Co- it comes alive. Mm-hmm. It's this cave of wonders mm-hmm. for, for the children because they're getting all this stuff from the outside. Um, yeah. A similar thing happens with the farms as well that they they live in in, in part two. In in the book, you get a sense that there's something fundamentally wrong, but that the characters haven't really picked up on it. That they haven't picked up on how strange it is to be living in a property Mm -hmm. all left to their own devices, trailing mud through the the house and everything, and not really picking up that they're living in very squalid, bad conditions. Right.
1: Well, you later know that they don't know any better. Yeah. You know, they really... This is their whole world, and essentially you have these group of kids who are clones and they're meant to be here on this planet just to be donors and that's their whole purpose is to that's the scientific breakthrough is that they're there to give organs to whoever but that's their only their only purpose in this and so you know in the in the book it does, you don't know that right away and it's kind of hinted at and then what i what i like about it is um at one point kathy says that it's almost like they've known all along that that's what they were meant for because the the people at the head of the school would sort of like strategically tell them certain things by a certain age so that when the truth started, it really come out, it wouldn't be a shock to them. It's almost Mm -hmm. like they were preparing them for this truth.
0: Yeah, she says that they're told these things, maybe when they're a year or two, too young to fully understand each bit of information that they're being given. Mm -hmm. So that that information is there, but they haven't fully understood it. And that's where one of the key parts of the story with Miss Lucy is one Mm -hmm. of the guardians who is upset by seeing this and feels that they should know exactly what is going on in their lives
1: yeah and i and i feel okay i kind of do want to start with that because this is very this is one of the first things that sort of struck me as i watched the film and i think because i read the book and then watched the film right away yeah i did the exact same so it was very very fresh and i think i don't know if maybe that was the best idea i think sometimes it's good to you know forget for a little while but I was just very kind of like, wow, like they're already on on this part of the story. And uh, Miss Lucy, I feel like obviously all the characters have more moments in the book because with books, you can really get into it. But I just felt that those characters at the school, like Miss Lucy, like Madame and Miss um, Emily, they all had such a huge influence and such a huge presence in the book. In every scene, I just felt like they were just around and the, the students. And I, I did not get that from the film. In terms of character, I think the tone was really spot on. I think they were able to sort of capture this sort of melancholy, sort of very meditative sort of presence that the story exudes. I think they captured that tone. But I think when it comes to the characters, I felt like I wasn't given what I was experiencing it in the book. And, and don't get me wrong, I think... Um, uh, Sally Hawkins, who played Miss Lucy, she was so great. Like in the few scenes that you have with her, you do get that sense of she is sort of you know, she finds this whole thing really upsetting. Yeah.
0: She has a strong sense of moral duty and ethics. Yes, I think.
1: and and she does a lot with her role, in just a little bit, which is great. I just kind of I kind of had wished that they would have just expanded that a little bit, showed more of the interaction between the you know the three of them tommy ruth and kathy with the rest of the other students because i think there's a lot especially to do with tommy and how the other people how the other kids interact with him that really builds his character and we do get a glimpse of that in the film but i just don't think it's it gets the impact full weight that i was experiencing from the book as well
0: yeah um i'd like to maybe just consider a couple of things we've we've got in our history now Mm -hmm. so I think the only novel we've really seen an adaptation of is Silence. Um, Q&A adapted for Slumdog Millionaire was changed so much. I don't think it really comes under this umbrella, but Silence really felt like the entire book was converted into a screenplay. Mm -hmm. And this one is more like the essence of the book, but so much had to be done. It's actually fascinating to compare these two things side by side because mm-hmm. they kind of are versions of the same thing. And I, th- I know that's what Alex Garland was intending when mm-hmm. he tried to write it. Despite how well adapted it is, perhaps it could have been a bit longer. Mm-hmm. I think 120 pages yes. could have helped. Mm-hmm. And even in the 98 pages, I think the final version of the shooting script is, I feel like there were maybe one or two scenes that could have been cut out and replaced with scenes that were honoring the book in, in a better way. Mm-hmm. That said, looking at this introduction, what the screenplay does so well is it establishes exactly what this world is, who the main character is, Kathy, who Ruth and Tommy are, what's at stake because you're seeing this, this future in which Tommy is actually in an operating room giving it one of his mm-hmm. donations, and Kathy is watching. Right. And then it's telling us, okay, we're going back in time. And one of the techniques Alex Garland used to show us that they were the same people was the bracelets on their wrists, mm-hmm. which is not in the uh, in the book at all. It's, it's never referred to, I don't believe. Mm. So it was a, a device that he was using to show these are the same characters because they're always wearing these bracelets. Right. Which, actually, when you see the final cut of the film, you don't see the bracelets on the adult Kathy and Tommy's arms. So you actually lose a bit of that, uh, Mm -hmm. which was actually quite a smart move, I think, by Alex Garland to put that in. So because we often find that with child actors, how hard it is, especially when you're starting a story with the elder characters and then jumping back to the children. Right sometimes it's hard to relate who is who. So he, yeah. was, he was trying to use some very clear imagery. One was the bracelets and the fact that Ruth and Kathy would have different hair colors was the second thing that he firmly established in the screenplay, so we'd easily identify them. And I don't believe either of these things really have any prominence in the book.
1: I think the reason why Alex Garland didn't need any of that stuff is because it's pretty clear who is who, just based on the casting. I mean, easy, Mickle small who plays a young Kathy, she looks exactly the same as Carrie Mulligan. They literally have the same face. So that was like, you know, you don't really need more to add to that. And I think So she's a
0: possible for. <laughs> Maybe. <Yeah.
1: laughs> right, exactly. And then Ella Purnell, who looks like Kira Knightley. I mean, these actors, there was no need to really explain who it was who. I think it was pretty clear. And you're right. The, it, the screenplay does a good job at, kind of giving you the bare bones in terms of plot and just kind of really does as best as it can to let the moments play out because that to me was the one of the most special things about the book is that there's a lot of seemingly small moments with such profound repercussions i mean if you really look at the story between the three of them there's nothing really super dramatic that happens there's all these just like Moments that just start building up between the three of them, and they're just so profound and so honest and raw. And it deals with humanity in such a deep way that it's like it's almost unfilmable. How are you gonna?
0: Yeah, I remember seeing that this interview with Alex Garland Mm. talking about this process and how he was saying he's been a screenwriter now for such a long time compared to the time he was a novelist, and Mm -hmm. so he's thinking like a screenwriter and thinking, Where's the conflict? Right. That's that's his central question. That's so important to screenplays. Right. Where is the conflict? And you can really see how that is emphasized as an alternative to the book, which is always going to be free of conflict because it's based on this one person's view of the past. Mm. And it's, it's based on that person's interpretation of what happened. And Kathy is always saying in the book that she's not sure. She's saying, it felt to me like Ruth was doing this or... Mm. She's trying to read other people's movements and read Mm -hmm. read their facial expressions, try and get to the core of what they're saying to her and then wondering if she's misremembering it. Whereas in the screenplay, you're seeing it happen right in front of you. So you have to really establish who is who. And so Mm -hmm. Ruth starts to take this this darker side, I think, Mm. even though a lot of it is actually there in the character from the book. It has to be much clearer on screen who yeah. she is and how manipulative she can be, and due to her own insecurities.
1: Yeah, I mean, everything's subjective in the book, obviously, but in the film, it kind of it's obviously objective because we're we're witnessing everything. There's there's only one version of the truth. In the book, we're not sure. Even she's not sure. She's kind of an unreliable narrator in a lot of ways.
0: Yeah. And sometimes just because of her ignorance, just the fact she's been brought up in such a Mm -hmm. isolated fashion, it's hard for, we we still see her as this child. And that's kind of part of the problem of this world that they live in is that they never really get to mature. They, they're kind of destined for death before they'll ever reach full maturity.
1: Yeah. In a way they're kind of caught in this sort of arrested development, but they were the lucky ones because as we later find out, you know, the world doesn't really care much for them. I think the way that they deliver this message, actually in the film, was very effective, was when uh, Miss Emily tells them that, you know, they had answers to questions that weren't being asked, meaning the world doesn't care. You know, they can live longer now, and, and I think that's one of the themes, too, underlying themes of the whole film, the whole story. And the other thing, too, that one of the sort of Big changes, and I think Alex Garland was very vocal about this too. Was they changed the? They decidedly made it very sci-fi. Uh, in the book, you could be reading the first fifty pages, almost hundred pages, and there's nothing sci-fi about it. There's just a very intimate perspective of a childhood, of a group of friends, of feelings towards life and and thoughts. I mean, there's nothing really sci-fi about it, but the film decisively takes that genre right from the get-go, just from the first titles. you know, In 1950, this was created because obviously now it's a fantasy because they're changing history because obviously that didn't happen in real life. So now we're dealing with something. And I think that was a smart move too, I think to just kind of give it a genre because I think it's more from a business perspective. It's just much more marketable that way too. Even though I think that I'm so glad that the film did not go into... The whole sci-fi realm at any point. I mean, it was just yeah. implied. There was yeah, just the, moments. The book
0: was the book was never really a sci-fi book, and it was just this interesting premise for the author to to be thinking of well, how what would it be like to live in this world? I was trying to think about this a little bit in terms of the reaction people have to them and the fact that there isn't so much care in society about them
1: mm-hmm.
0: i am starting to think that the numbers of the clones must be quite low mm-hmm. just in general so you've got a country it's the uk in the 1970s 1980s so maybe 50 million people as a population mm-hmm. so maybe there's only a few thousand of these clones mm-hmm. and then if the general population's perception is they're essentially just like these bodies that you're growing in test tubes essentially and are just growing the organs that people will use mm-hmm. from that perspective people probably don't care and that's where this this whole idea of trying to prove that they really are like humans that they have souls comes into it
1: and i think the best representation of that perspective is in the books it's from madame when she goes and visits and kathy is very perceptive to the way she looks at them she perceives a different reaction like she's scared of them they're definitely being looked at in a completely different way than the rest of the school teachers that was actually very well portrayed in the film by the actress i think she she hit that note yeah the right pretty well the
0: right level of shuddering i suppose and feeling uncomfortable around what are seemingly just some some young children at the school that you're intentionally visiting right
1: like why would you have that reaction to just seemingly like you just said normal students but again that's the first clue in the book you think nothing of it I was like oh there's something up with this character but as more and more is revealed you realize like right because then you put yourself in in her shoes how would you i kept asking myself that too i was like right well how would i react if i go to a school where there's just a bunch of clones that would be in your mind as you're you're seeing all these kids, but none of these kids have parents. They were made in a lab, but Mm -hmm. here they are full flesh and blood right here. I mean, there's an element of just as a a human thing that you would be a little put off by it in some way. I don't know. I honestly don't know how I would react. I would try to be as simple as possible. And there might be a lot of
0: misinformation about them Mm -hmm. in the world they live in as well.
1: Yeah, there's an element of fear because... It's alluded to in the book, too, that there was a television series that hurt their cause. Yes. So So presumably
0: some sort of survival horror.
1: Clones attack. Yeah, exactly. You know, they never get into it, but it implies that. Yeah, the, the perception of them is fearful. They're to be feared, except for the people who are running the school, who are actually there doing the best they can to give them a better life before they have to go, before they have to be donating all their organs. And I think they're trying to show the world that they have a soul. And that doesn't come into play in the book until towards the end. Like, we don't really know any of this. We're just getting Kathy's perspective. And in the film, too, we don't get that revelation, too, until the very end, which is pretty cool.
0: I think the important thing is that the first part has to set up, just like the book does has to set up all of the essential ideas that we need to be on board with as an audience in order for the ending to be effective for us to to really realize that this ending is a there's no way out anymore this is all the doors are closing around them Mm -hmm. that's what we need to feel and so we can't have too many questions the other important thing is having a sense that we've known these characters since childhood Mm -hmm. okay so yeah the The shooting script is actually one hundred pages long. Hmm. And the book is just under three hundred pages in the paperback format I read. I'm not sure about the one you read.
1: Two sixty six.
0: Perfect. So and that's full of text. It's it's all Kathy telling us all these anecdotes, all these stories, everything about her life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What happens is for part one, Alex Garland summarizes 115 pages of literature in 42 screenplay pages. Mm. And so he had to extract out of all of that content the key scenes. And uh, I think he did a great job of doing it because so many of those scenes were the ones that were memorable, the ones that really stood right. out to me as a reader. And those were, in particular, Tommy not being selected to play football mm-hmm. and his fit afterwards because he couldn't control his temper mm-hmm. another was kathy and ruth playing horses mm-hmm. talking about ruth's imaginary horses mm-hmm. and i think that is just such a incredible thing to about these two characters and something kathy writes about in the very sad parts towards the end is that she felt that her and tommy were always trying to find things out and ruth was always willing to believe Mm. and that's something that is cut out of the screenplay but the ruth had this secret club where they were the protectors of miss geraldine and ruth believed all these stories she was inventing these stories about oh miss geraldine's going to be kidnapped unless we keep her safe and it was all about this belief this belief in stuff that wasn't true Mm. Uh, whereas kathy and tommy were more realists right um some of the other scenes that i think alex garland really picked out and and knew how to to utilize the sales i think that was a very important scene yes and it also brings in that central motif of the the tape of never let me go
1: yeah obviously very crucial because the books that's what the book's named um but you could see any normal hollywood
0: screenwriter thinking maybe i'll just take out the bit about the the cassette the cassette yeah that was that's but a very so bad screenwriter. The, but it's uh, so critical to yes. the, the identity of this story.
1: It's very critical because on a number of different levels, and I think w- that was one of the things I wish that would have kept because there's a there's a big difference in one aspect. So the cassette, uh, for those who read the book and watch the film, is it's something that she acquired during you know the the sales the, the sales and then means a lot to her. She really likes the song, but then it goes missing. But that's not in the film.
0: Yes, she just holds on to it, and there is no... Not only is there no tension there about who might have stolen it, which it's reasonably implied that it's either a guardian or Ruth that has done this.
1: Right, and she's not trying to show too much emotion over having lost this. And one of my favorite parts about reading the book... I can see maybe why they didn't think this was important but it's at the very end when they they go to norfolk and they're looking which is established as this place where everything that's lost ends up mm-hmm. and um i really just liked all that symbolism you know there's that's the place where everything and that is exactly where she finds the type mm-hmm. you know they go into what i assume are thrift shops and they're looking yeah, cha- for old they're stuff called
0: charity shops in the uk but essentially it's oh the okay same thing. Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. oh wow i didn't know that that's I, cool i mean i think they go
0: to maybe some antique shops they they don't the the problem is as as they don't know much about the outside world right she's kind of describing the places she's going to without calling them the names that we're used to right but i think she's going to charity shops which is usually a place where like salvation people, army and yeah all people that stuff. will donate right. their stuff and yeah. Sometimes you find really incredible charity shops. Yeah. In in the UK, there are there's almost kind of a pride to it that certain ones will kind of take on the identity of a city. Oh wow! So I was in one in Exeter not too long ago, and it uh, you know it was full of antique maps and you know really? books, books from the eighteen hundreds and stuff like that, and it was all just donated. It was actually just a charity
1: shop. Oh, I wish there was something like that here. At least I don't think there is. That's really cool. And I just really love, at that point, we're really starting to understand deep down that Tommy is in love with Kathy. And he tells her that he's been waiting for that moment where he finds the tape and has been fantasizing about what he would say when he finds it and gives it to her and her her reaction to it. And to me, that, that I don't know, I was very moved by that. I was just, I read that and I was just like, I really enjoyed that moment, but obviously that's not in the film. Yeah, at it, all.
0: it really reveals Tommy's heart of gold. The the fact that yeah. he had these these anger problems when he was a kid, it doesn't reflect the adult that Tommy becomes and he is clearly her rock. He is the dependable person she can always count on.
1: Yeah. And um, I think also part of his character is that he just he's very uh, and I think Andrew Garfield described him as very sort of instinctive and animalistic and he, he he feels very deeply. And and there's a point in the book where Kathy tells him that, you know, well, maybe the reason why you had all these anger outbursts is because you knew at some level that was your soul just like that was the just the yeah, rage, just the rage at, yeah, exactly. of that of circumstance the that they're in. Mm-hmm. And that was very deep when I read that. I was like, wow, that's very powerful. That's something that's also not in the film, which I wish they kind of would have included the, that.
0: There's something psychologically about the idea of being condemned without being guilty of something.
1: Yeah, and and, and, and they didn't really rebel against it too much. I mean, not, not at one point was there any talk about escaping. Um, I think I you feel know,
0: that's what the Helsham education almost was aiming for. It was this free-range chicken farm. They're still going to be donors. That was never part of the question. They were were always going to be donors, but the idea was to... Yes, it seemed like they wanted to give them a good life up until that point, but there was also a sense that they were trying to make them docile, trying to make them accepting of that fate through this education.
1: Yeah, like the ultimate brainwash.
0: And that's why Miss Lucy was such a dangerous person, Mm -hmm. because... doesn't seem like it's such a big deal to, to warn them about their futures, to tell them what their futures are going to be, if that's what all the other guardians are doing anyway, mm-hmm. but in a different way. Mm-hmm. I think it's the fact that she was saying it in this sense of, you should be rebelling against this. You should be. She didn't say it in those words, of course, but that's the, that's the undertone to what she's saying. She's saying, this is unjust. Right, and you need to understand this,
1: yes, she was just projecting, I think, her own like feelings of anger about it. you know, I I like you said, I don't think she was suggesting that they were about, but I think she was just projecting her frustration into her just it seemed unfair that they didn't really get it. So you know, she's upset when they're talking about being movie stars or they're fantasizing about some other profession because she knows that obviously that is not gonna happen ever. And for her, that's just a big injustice, and her anger and her frustration is projected. And I think, yeah, obviously, that's why she's like, "Oh, because that is a dangerous idea, because that can instill rebellion, it can instill some sort of uprising," and um, which is something that never happens in the book, which I love because that would have been a cliche if all of a sudden there is a rebellion and you know, blah blah. blah. We've seen that a million times. Yeah. I, I like uh, the sort of resignation to their fate.
0: Yeah, uh, Caso. Casual... Ishiguro actually talked about this in, in the interview he had with mm-hmm. with Alex Garland, mm-hmm. and he was saying so many people do resign themselves to fates. They mm-hmm. stay in unhappy marriages, they work in jobs that make them miserable, mm-hmm. and he finds that fascinating, and he, he wanted to include that in this story. The fact that he really does see people tolerating things that they just shouldn't tolerate.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and even though we, the thought did cross my mind a couple times reading the book, it was like, well, why don't they just run away? Like, you know, mm-hmm. they're out in the world at this point, you know, uh, towards the end of the film when they're no longer in cottages or whatever. I'm know, like, I have well, the same feeling. Yeah, I'm like, who's really watching them? Like, I'm the sure amount of they wilderness
0: can... they could go off into. But
1: and it's never implied that they had some sort of chip that would, you know, they were going to explode if they run away or anything. But it was just implied that you just don't do that and that's that's more powerful And what would
0: you get what would they what kind of existence could they hope for they would essentially be fugitives they're essentially property
1: yeah it's this inescapable fate yeah and i think that's manifested very powerfully in the book one of my other favorite parts of the book when tommy after they go visit madame towards the end and he gets out of the car and he just lets out this wail this scream this primal scream which andrew garfield did brilliantly in the film too you're just trapped in you're in a prison and there's literally no escape whatsoever and having to resign to that
0: i i'd love to comment more on the miss lucy scene i think it's mm-hmm. the, for the for me that scene was exemplary of what you can achieve by reading the book before seeing the film there was something about that scene in particular that when it was brought to life It really hit me. And I'd read it in the book, and then I'd read it in the screenplay, but it was only when I saw this teacher stood in front of Mm. all these kids looking at her, just with that, that way the children look up to the adult in the room as their guide, and just hearing this truth, which is just shattering their entire world, and then how Miss Lucy can't even face them anymore she has to go over to the window and and look out and it was just so well the the tension in that scene was just so well done and it it really hit me i think in in a way that yeah i'm not sure if it would have if if i had just seen the film without any other context but again it is kind of the revelatory part of that film it's it's its heart in the to give us that sense right from the beginning that These are some odds that are going to be extremely difficult to overcome, if possible at all.
1: Yeah, it's when the whole outside world is put into perspective. Up until then, we don't have much of that in the book. We're all just kind of really following the relationships and we're following more of that as opposed to what the politics are. We don't really get that much of an explanation. But yes, you're right. Once we come to that, it's a whole reveal. And it doesn't really feel like a reveal. I think it was very well written in both the film and book, which is these answers represent hope for the character. So it's character-driven. So when she reveals this information, there's an impact on a personal level. It's not just for the plot. It's not to do to move the story forward or to give you some sort of closure and sense or nothing like that. You feel it because you're feeling what they're feeling, what these characters are feeling. You just shadow their dreams. Whatever little hope they had mustered is now gone. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's such an impactful scene. And you're right. When I watched it too, um, it's heartbreaking. I really did enjoy that scene as well.
0: There's also something powerful about it because of the femininity as well. The fact mm-hmm. that our main characters are, are all female, with the exception of Tommy. All of the Guardians are female. And watching, mm-hmm. they are kind of like mothers to these, these children that have no parents. And to see that shattering of the illusion of protection and care, it's it's very powerful. I don't think it would have had the same power if it was a male authority figure coming in and declaring that to the room there's that's, something about yeah. the, the, the desire to care for for mm. the younger generation
1: that's very true that's very true uh and also which kind of leads me to it's a nice little segue to something i had i was sort of conflicted while watching the film because it felt you know when you're reading the book and obviously you can't translate word for word a book to a film But what I'm trying to say is that I felt a lot of the conflict between Ruth and Kathy and Tommy. It it didn't translate quite as strongly in the film, even though you had three brilliant actors who I think they did a great job. But I think I know this has – it's more to do with the way it was shot, I feel. It was kind of stale a little bit. There was beautiful shots. The lighting was great if you really look back and watch the film, they're all wide shots. There's very little close-ups. And to me, that felt like a missed opportunity because why aren't we watching emotions on a close-up? Because Mm -hmm. when we're reading the book, Kathy is very descriptive about how she's observing people. Oh, she shifted her eyes, and now she's look When they're in the car especially, uh, Ruth's in the passenger seat, and Kathy's driving, and they're going off to see the boat, for example. It's one of the vi- bit more visual scenes is that, you know, she's wondering what Ruth is thinking. She's looking out, and she's very descriptive about the way she's looking, her gaze. And she's very descriptive about her gazes in previous scenes too, you know, when they're in school, when she's being deceptive, when she's lying. All these little moments I felt could have enhanced the story had the camera been a little closer.
0: It's interesting, actually, that so many of the scenes I remember vividly from the film were the close-ups. So there's a, a couple of examples would be when when Tommy is in the forest talking to Kathy and she starts crying. Mm. That's a close-up, mm-hmm. but it's not that close. It's it's still there's still enough of a distance between the actor and the camera Mm -hmm. to to show what what you're talking about here and the same is also true of when she visits ruth and i think it's the part in the screenplay where she's described as her skin is completely gray and she's she's done a couple of her donations right and she's basically getting ready to to pass away and those are the parts of the film that really stand out those kind of moments when the camera did get in a bit closer and did show us what was really going on without too much dialogue and just letting us yeah. watch the the faces of the actors for a moment
1: yeah that, that, that's just something i wish that that would have been different for the film which has nothing to do with the screenwriting i think it's just more of the aesthetic of the the film because it just felt too polished in a way i think they struck the right tone because of the music which i thought was great and the cinematography there's this sort of somber tone to it the pacing of it the editing felt very but if they would have just pushed in and i'd say costume
0: and location were both picked very well
1: yeah no visually I, it was more or less what i was picturing yeah definitely but it's just that that was just my one sort of like takeaway It's like, man, if they would have gone just a little bit closer on certain scenes, and maybe would would have felt a little more weight, emotional weight for these characters, because that to me is the heart of the book, because there's all these little nuances in the relationship that they have with each other, and the dynamic that they have when they're in the same room. I mean, it's so palpable when you're reading, it feels like you recall two moments in your own life when you've experienced those emotions, which are a lot of them very specific. You know, it's not just that, oh they're sad. Or in this scene they're no, there's like layers and layers of like just different emotions and thoughts. And it's just very relatable because as human beings we've all gone through those things with different people. And that that's why I really enjoyed the book because it felt very honest. It felt very like it was exposing truth about ourselves that I don't think many books do. At least I haven't read that many books. I have to me it just felt like wow like this is really cool like i i don't read this too often which is why when i saw the film i felt like i wasn't getting that per se
0: it was always going to be a tough task i i would like to look at just a bit more of the makeup of part one and then what i believe is the biggest sin of the film adaptation in part one okay and then we'll jump into part two then we get to see our main cast of actors and we the main part of the story t- kicks off,
1: which, so, by the way, just to kind of add to that, I think it was already that was one of the good things that I I liked is that it was kind of prepackaged in a way like this three act narrative yeah. because in the book you definitely have yeah literally three stages of life three parts this, yeah so I felt like that that already kind of helped the storytelling in adapting the book into a script is that that was sort of found that foundation was already kind of there yeah
0: so as as I was mentioning before part one. Alex Garland had to essentially really quickly identify, at least that's the way it feels when you read it. Of course, it could have taken months to have done this, but what I mean is identify quickly for the audience what did we need to know from those five or six pages of of anecdote that Kathy was telling us. Boil that down to a few lines of dialogue and show us something about these characters. So he starts to introduce who Kathy is, who Tommy is, who Ruth is, and then this is a, the scene that I would call the sin of the film is the scene where Kathy is by herself and she's listening to her tape, Never Let Me Go, and she's, she's got this pillow that she's holding and dancing with. Mm-hmm. And it's a fundamental part of the book is that Madame is the person who's watching her. The door is slightly ajar. Right. And Madame is watching this little girl who is listening to this song, Never Let Me Go, dancing, caressing, holding this this pillow tight as if it was another person or a baby. Kathy says she was imagining it was a baby at the time, a mother that didn't want to let her child go. Right. And Madame has just stood in the doorway crying. And that made it into the script, and Alex Garland recognized that was very important to the ending. Mm Mm-hmm to this connection why do we make this connection about madame yes the initial scene where she's scared of the kids is is important as well mm-hmm. but this scene is more important and mm-hmm. for some reason in the film it's ruth watching her mm-hmm. and madame is is removed and i don't know why that jumped presumably mark mark Romanek made a choice there and he was definitely a director who was on board with being as loyal to the book as possible mm. but something a decision got made there and i think it really did a bit of injustice to the actual story i know i know it could seem like a minor point but there is a big difference between having no. madame see yeah. and cry you know have that figure crying or having ruth see it as an opportunity to pounce more on Kathy to to take further advantage of Kathy. I I just didn't see why that needed to change.
1: I absolutely agree, 100%. When I watched that, I was like, oh, that's completely different. And part of the reason why that is so important, as you mentioned, is because in the end, we get context for that scene from Madame's perspective. Then when we hear her side of the story, what she was thinking when she was watching Kathy do that. And and as
0: a book... Remember, we're we're being told all the time Kathy's memories. Mm -hmm. And the time the book is written in is after Ruth and Tommy have both died. Right. That's when Kathy is writing this story. That's when she's telling the world what happened to her. And Madame is one of those counterpoints. Miss Emily and Madame are suddenly this person who get to offer that other perspective. It's not just Kathy's interpretation that she's made of everything. Right. She's always trying to interpret. Well, what did Ruth really mean at that time? What did Tommy really mean? What did the guardians mean? There's this one point where they get to really discuss this same thing that they both have a memory of from two different perspectives. Mm -hmm. And that was just lost. And Mm -hmm. I feel like it would have added a lot more weight to the ending.
1: Absolutely. I was definitely disappointed by that change the same way. Yeah, it would seem like a small change, but I still don't know the logic behind having Ruth. Like, what is the impact of that? I I really don't know.
0: My initial interpretation of it is that it gives Ruth some ammunition Mm -hmm. against Kathy, some further way to know more, because she's witnessed this private moment, and then she's trying to, take from kathy what is rightfully hers which is i know that's a difficult way of putting it but essentially kathy and and tommy's love was authentic and ruth tried to make her way into that relationship and take tommy away from kathy right and so having more of a sense of kathy's private intimate times this comes up in part two as well with the with the porn magazine that kathy's reading and ruth tries to use that again, as, as ammunition. It's a private thing that Kathy is doing, and then Ruth kind of goes after her and yeah. tries to... Th- that's another thing about having the main protagonists be girls as opposed to boys, is just the degree to which girls, and especially young girls, can just tear each other apart through just words, as opposed to boys who tend to be a bit more physical about physical it. about it exactly and then arrange a hierarchy based on
1: <laughs> yeah on who it's...
0: you know those kind of things the girls hierarchy in in the school playground is based on different things and the girls that rise to the top of that hierarchy are the ones like ruth
1: i agree and i i, I do feel like that was a missed opportunity in the first part another another Thing about the the first part is that so the first part is sham and I feel in the in the book that that place really came alive in my head. You know the dynamics between the students, um, which is so funny because I was I
0: actually wanted to ask you about that because hmm. obviously I went to an English school, mm-hmm. so I'm I didn't I didn't live at the school. There there's boarding schools where the right. students live on site, and there's also Schools where you go in, you you go home to your own home, and then you go in in the morning. But my school was a big, ornate, gray building and with lots and lots of rooms and mm. extension buildings around it and things like that. But that's a very common thing in England. Right. And they, so even though this was set in the 70s as well, so the uniforms looked a bit not just outdated, but also you get the sense these students are wearing hand-me-down uniforms they're not creating new uniforms for these kids then. Right. so everything looked old and mm-hmm. probably even were from students in the 60s that they were wearing but the the fundamental workings of the school rang very true to me mm. the idea of going to these different rooms these different classrooms having the teacher come into each one um
1: yeah well i mean i grew up here in california specifically south bay san diego uh I, it's um it's very different so i couldn't really relate to that uh also but the
0: f- i think the point i was trying to get to is yeah. the fact it came alive for you is interesting
1: to me Yeah, because having yeah.
0: not experienced that and mm-hmm. if you'd seen the film first for example you would have visual context for what this this place must be like and yet you read it imagined it and then saw
1: it on i screen. guess that's true it just felt very real to me just because, again, the lev- the sophistication of her uh, observations and her perspective were so detailed and so rich that I was just with her 100% whatever she was explaining and describing. And because not only were you getting senses of like, oh, yeah, now, you know, we're going to this class and this classroom is used for this and people, kids are sneaking into this part of the school there was a feeling to it she was adding like how she felt about it and how it made her feel and think and all of that combined really creates a 3d picture in your head because mm. she's not just literally describing things but she's painting it with emotion
0: and boarding schools are these are the ones where students the private schools where students do live mm. at the school yeah and obviously the reaction to that is to find secret areas for groups of children to carve out their own spaces within the mm. physical layout of the school because they're, they're there all the time. Mm. So so Tommy and Kathy have this place that they go to beside the pond. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's like their spot. It's, right. it's for them. And so all the other students are doing similar things, picking secret little Places that they can go yeah. and, and be alone for a while or share their secrets and everything with their friends.
1: Right. Also, I did grow up watching Harry Potter, so maybe that helped.
0: <laughs> yeah. It, well, Harry Potter, again, it, again, it's it's based on the English school right. system. Even the idea of having houses and points is a, yeah. a common thing. Mm-hmm. Something that wasn't necessary at Hailsham. Right. One last thing for part Mm -hmm. one, and we'll move on to part two, is the introduction of the gallery, which is another thing linked to Madame. Mm -hmm. The fact that students are desperate to get their work into the gallery, Madame Mm -hmm. will turn up and select the best artworks, the best creations, the poems, whatever it is, and take them away for her gallery, and that Tommy didn't have anything in the gallery. Mm -hmm. Of course, that is fundamental. But again, it's it's something you have to draw out and really know the book quite well. So as mm-hmm. part of the adaptation process, that probably was one of the most important things to include. It's just the concept of the gallery because the whole end hinges on the gallery.
1: Yeah, right. And again, I would have just made that whole first section a little longer. I mean, you had great kids as um, talent. And actually, one really interesting bit that I... That I heard from the actors is that they shot all the adult stuff first and then they shot with the kids. But one really cool thing that they did was that they actually had the adult actors like Andrew Garfield and Karen Knightley and Carrie Mulligan actually act out all the kid scenes in front of the kids. So the kids could see, you know, actors that were a little bit more skilled, obviously, because they're older, take a go at their scenes. And then they would do like mix match. So the older so let's say like the younger Ruth was having a scene with Andrew Garfield, you know, but it's a scene from the first part. So they were getting to oh, interact with
0: that must have been an incredible actor's workshop for those kids.
1: It would yeah, and, and and it would the brilliant thing about it is because then they're following mannerisms from the actors, so it feels more concise in the way the the younger actors are portraying the older characters or the same characters i should say
0: yeah you could entirely see how that paid off
1: oh yeah so then you wouldn't need the bracelets or anything like that because you're always very well aware who is who so anyways yeah so i would have just spent a little more time on the first one and really flesh out the dynamics there
0: and actually just in terms of the amount of pages that the first Mm -hmm. part gets i think it gets roughly about a third of the screen time but in terms of screenplay pages We've got 42 pages for part one. And yeah. so the remaining 58 have to be divided into the two other parts. So actually right. part one does get the most of the screenplay. I think it should have been 120 pages, this screenplay. It's def- just I to, agree. Just to to give it a bit more time to, to settle into some of the... Sometimes I, I get the feeling that Alex Garland, he gave us the key bits of dialogue which is exactly what he needed to do. Mm-hmm. But because of the length, he didn't give us the extra ideas that come through. Right. I, I do think he added some nice stuff to the ending, and we'll see that towards the end as well. Mm-hmm. And I would have liked to have seen that part of it, having this independent voice, someone who is a great writer, as yeah. we saw with the Ex Machina screenplay especially, knowing he he has a great sense of when to add world building information into the dialogue and when to add in Mm -hmm. the characters reflecting on their own situation he he's very good at that so i would have liked to have seen that and yeah maybe it wouldn't even have needed 20 more pages just 10 more pages probably could have been added through that kind of dialogue
1: yeah i mean it's kind of hard to say with with that um but definitely i think um going into part two one of the things that i was really missing is just really just having more of a showcase of the dynamic between the three of them because to me that's the heart of the book the, the little betrayals the little revelations of each other the, the excitement of you know when Kathy is discovering that she likes Tommy these are all very palpable moments in the book and in the book it's the way the way Ishiguro uses language it's, it's never explicit. It's just, just the right words to point to a feeling or to point to a thought that then takes you on this journey that makes you understand that what he's describing. And he wrote that so beautifully. I mean, the, the stuff that I was feeling while reading the book, I mean, I would get goosebumps and I would just be like, so on that journey.
0: Well, one thing I'd like to just, as we're beginning part two, is just mm-hmm. to give uh, the listener a comparison of what part one was in the screenplay and what part two was. So part one was 42 pages of screenplay. Mm-hmm. Part two, which in the book takes up 100 pages in my paperback edition, got 27 screenplay pages. Just to, just to give a listener a bit of context, if they are not too in tune with how screen, uh, with all of the ins and outs of screenwriting, a 30-minute comedy series which once you've got all the commercials in and everything usually runs to about 22 minutes is 37 pages 30 to 37 usually (laughs) Mm. so trying to do all of part two of this phenomenal novel in 27 pages was always going to be a challenge some of the key parts of the book are taken out one of these is the fact that kathy has lost her cassette Never let me go, mm-hmm. and that will come up with Tommy searching for that when they are in Norfolk. Yeah, the rest of it, I think they, I think in general, he he captured the essence. Alex Garland had written into the screenplay quite clearly that these farms were meant to be quite horrible places, and in the film, they didn't seem that bad. It just seemed like a farmhouse that mm. was converted for people to live in and didn't. Have the sense in the book, it's strongly, it's very vividly described how cold they are all the time mm-hmm. in these old buildings and having to wear all these extra layers and wearing their shoes or their, their boots in the house. Mm-hmm. And there's mud coming into the house and everything, and just this old man, Kefas, comes and, and brings some stuff and then leaves them to it. Yep. That was the first time I thought, oh, they kind of live in a little bit of a concentration camp-style situation. You know, this, mm-hmm. this sense that they don't really know about sanitation, they don't really know about anything, and they're just being left there.
1: Yeah, and again, the the presence of their everyone that's not three, so in this case, Cassie and Rodney, these two characters really came alive to me in the book, and I think they would have been very instrumental. I mean, they do appear in the film, but they're very brief appearance like they're in just a couple scenes but yeah,
0: they mainly serve the purpose of bringing the rumor to the forefront the rumor being that there's such a thing as deferrals and that you right. can get a deferral if you're in love and we'll look at that i suppose in a second
1: exactly they're there for like plot and in the book they would really bring out characteristics from the characters like you really to me that's when it started to become really clear to me The type of person Ruth was and the type of person that Kathy was and the type of person that Tommy was just based on their individual interactions with Cassie and Rodney. Um, You saw uh, you saw Ruth's desperateness to, you know, fit in this. uh, um, I don't want to say fakeness. There's got to be a better word, but she's constantly faking a lot of things just so that she can be a part of it. And I
0: think that goes back to the hierarchy I was talking about as well, that Mm -hmm. there's a sense that Ruth was up in the hierarchy in Hailsham. Mm -hmm. And having left Hailsham she ends up in this position where she's no longer the oldest and the coolest. There are other students well not students I suppose, but yeah. There are others of them who are a year or two older and seem cooler and more worldly because this group has just come out of hailsham the others have been living in the cottages for mm. for a year or two mm-hmm. so suddenly ruth has to try and mature really quickly and the only person the only people around her who can teach her how to mature are these other people so she starts copying them yeah Whereas kathy yeah. kathy feels that she can mature naturally without copying other people that she will mature because she's getting older and she's having new experiences. And she does call Ruth out on on this. And she does. That causes tension between the two of them.
1: And in the and these little moments in the book feel like monumental emotional shifts in their in their relationship with one another. And I think that's what I, I when I was watching the scene where they're watching the television, and then afterwards Ruth like kind of like uh gives gives Tommy a little massage or just touches him in the shoulder and then she walks away and then obviously he's kind of like baffled by it and then the next scene right after, Kathy confronts her about it like, why did you do that? You're only doing that because, you know, the other two are doing it and they're only doing it because they watch it on a TV show and that's only what people out there are doing. To me, Kathy came off as slightly antagonistic in that scene because it's almost like, why is she being so mean about it? Like she's calling her out but in the book, it's the final straw of Ruth doing these things.
0: Yeah, the, the, because because in the book we've seen this relationship and what really holds it together ultimately is this. They are best friends there, and there is a lot of honesty between them. And so Kathy, I think she's really more disturbed by the fact that Ruth isn't being honest and true to the person that she was previously. There isn't so much antagonism between them at Hailsham. In the book, it really starts in part two.
1: Yeah, it, it, there's more of that in part two, but it, it was a result of, because it, it literally said in the book, usually I let this go, but this time I could not let it go. So this is something that was building and the film was just that happened once and then she had this sort of talk with her, which is why she felt antagonistic if you don't know the books you're kind of like okay she's making a big deal out of this and it's kind of out of place and it doesn't i don't know i just felt like that's where i feel i would have put a little bit more emphasis in the script at a couple more moments where it builds up to that moment where it's making a commentary on the type of choices that ruth is making that obviously are not authentic because that's part of her character and I think that's what's the difference between her and Kathy.
0: One of my favorite quotes from the screenplay, I th- I think it's phrased in more or less the same terms in the book anyway, but mm-hmm. in the screenplay it's written this way. It's, Kathy says, It had never occurred to me that our lives, until then so closely interwoven, could unravel and separate with such speed. Mm. And that is something that I think all people go through in Mm -hmm. the sense that you realize that sometimes the the thing that connected you to these people that you considered yourself so close with was school for example and then you move on to the next step Mm -hmm. it might be work or university or something and you might make all these connections at university and it doesn't mean there won't be some people that you carry on and clearly kathy tommy and ruth always do have this special connection Mm -hmm. But she's just shocked at how quickly without Hailsham and then without the cottages after the end of part two that they do go off to live separate lives and she can't believe the speed that because Mm -hmm. that's all they ever knew was just that they'd always be together.
1: Yeah, those scenes where you have the three of them, for example, one of the key scenes that did not make it into the film is this whole part of Tommy showing his art to Kathy and being quite reserved about it because he's not sure if it's good or not and in the book yeah See, I,
0: th- I thought it was important to introduce that uh, in part two in, yeah. the, in the film it's part three right that we find out right. that he's been doing art
1: and it's important for a couple of reasons and it would have been a great opportunity to make it more impactful in the film and I think it's when Kathy finally sees the side of Tommy and not only is he drawing but he's drawing good you know people used to make fun of him for it and we saw that in the book and also in the film there's a very quick scene where everyone's making fun of his drawing but he's actually doing something that you know is good and Kathy likes and Kathy tells him that she thinks it's really good and then later in the book there's a scene where the three of them are in a tree or under a tree and um, it's revealed that now Ruth knows about this and you could tell she's jealous that he didn't go to her first. And that Kathy's known for a while. And this was the last straw that broke the camel's back. And Ruth sinks to a new low by saying, you know, both me and Kathy think it's rubbish. It's it's not good. And, and, and seemingly that's like a huge betrayal. It is. Yeah. That Tommy feels, looks at Kathy. Kathy doesn't even... She says there's like, the way it's described in the book, it's beautiful. I'm trying to remember what it said, but. She
0: it, knew that she needed to do something and she didn't do it at that moment, she felt, in the moment passed.
1: She felt lethargic. Yeah. At the point where you just let it hit you because you just have no energy to, to tackle that huge shift, that huge slap that she just felt. And in doing so, Tommy was led to believe that kathy had lied to him when she told him that she thought that his drawings were good inherently breaking the bond that was starting to grow and this was out of spite and this is ruth's doing so in the book you're like whoa like that to me when i read it that that's like a major shift and it was because then things start to unfold shortly after that things start to unravel quicker Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah
0: the screenplay tries to make that moment the unraveling Mainly about this uh, this side story about Kathy finding this pornographic magazine, and she she's looking at all of the faces of the right. of the models mm-hmm. because she thinks she must have come from one of these people. Mm-hmm. And it it is a great centerpiece, I think, for part two. That the scene mm-hmm. in the film where they're on the beach and Ruth she's just found out that the possible that she's searching for is definitely not the original version of her Mm -hmm. and as as ruth says uh we all know it we just never say it we're modeled from trash junkies prostitutes winos tramps convicts maybe so long as they aren't psychos if you want to look for possibles if you want to do it properly then look in the gutter that's where we come from Mm. and that again that's the miss lucy moment of part two That's when, again, they face someone telling the truth, and it's so horrible to listen to. And it's one of those things that they constantly come back to. We all know, but we don't know. Mm. And when Ruth says that out loud, that's what the screenplay tries to turn into that moment that you just described, where it's really about Ruth, Kathy, and Tommy's... The actual inner workings of that group fall apart because of that lie. Mm -hmm. I think the screenplay leans on this maybe a bit too much and then it also it's missing the side story where Tommy goes searching in all the charity shops to find Mm -hmm. and and Kathy goes with him and she's the one that ends up finding it but Mm -hmm. it was Tommy's idea he really wanted to find her that cassette and that that reveals his strong love for her Mm -hmm. that has been there since they were children. And those yeah. are just two little... I mean, I still think that part two was well adapted. I think mm-hmm. it covered the the general sense of, of part two in the book. Those mm-hmm. are the points that I would yeah. draw upon as as maybe that could have been brought back in and added a bit more to the story.
1: Yeah, and I think the actors really just make it come alive too. I mean, like you said, there's not that many scenes that are in part two, but I think they make the most out of it. There's... A the, lot scene, of the scene about
0: deferrals we should talk about as well, which is right. Donald Gleason is fantastic, even with mm-hmm. such a small role in just that scene, because That's- you are watching someone having that same revelation. Yeah, there's no hope.
1: Right, and and then that sense of desperation. Yeah, and and that 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 crushedness that that he portrays. And I mean, I I, I wish we could have spent a little more time with them too, but that those are the very centerpieces because that does set up the final part too, because it kind of, um, it kind of gives them hope. So now there's a little bit of hope for, yeah,
0: the Hailsham students end up with hope. Whereas the Rodney and Chrissy and and students who are not Hailsham in the book, it's, it's actually implied. So this is something that, I guess I should explain how the different versions treat this. In the book, there's no mention of the deferral's rumor at Hailsham at all. At no point mm-hmm. you know, in the early part of the book. In the screenplay, it's added in, and then it's taken out in the film. The, mm-hmm. the, at Hailsham, they had this rumor. Mm-hmm. I'm glad they took it out. It's more faithful to the book. Yep. And I don't think it serves any purpose to to keep it because... I prefer it being just a rumour that they overheard from some students who had never even been to Hailsham.
1: Who just had this belief
0: that Hailsham was special.
1: Right. Like all these degrees of separation. As most rumors are. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, no, but that that's a very center piece, I think. And And the fact
0: Ruth believes that, and mm-hmm. it goes back to that concept I mentioned before. Ruth believes, Kathy and Tommy find out. This is the the this is the difference between these characters. The reason why Kathy and Tommy should be together because they're so alike. And Ruth just has this blind faith in believing, but that blind faith pays off when she finds out Madame's address, basically. You know, there, there is something to be said about having the, that belief because she carries on believing right. in the rumor.
1: Right. Yeah, and she's the one that kind of points them in that in that direction. You're absolutely right. It's very heartbreaking
0: reading or watching Tommy say back to to Rodney essentially I I never heard that rumor there's just this moment where whether it's on screen or the way it's written in in the book it's it that's quite heartbreaking as well because Tommy's he's always trying to please other people as well <laughs> right and this is like one of the worst things he could say to mm. it's it's not just to it's not intended to displease him. But it's shattering their world by him saying it.
1: And he's a very honest character. Mm-hmm. He's he's very unfiltered in his emotions and his thoughts. So, And it's only until Tommy tells him that the truth hits him because he's there's no sense of lie in the way he delivers it. And that's part of the heartbreak because he's also processing. Yeah, I've never heard of that. But nonetheless, I think it does... In the book, it kind of gives them a little bit more hope. Mm-hmm. You know, because there is a scene where afterwards... Oh, and that's the other thing too I wanted to mention that I felt the adaptation kind of did not do enough of, which is to really play with these little breadcrumbs of um, information that was giving them, leading them to believe this truth that was not to be the truth, but was part of the truth. And I will explain what that is. And that is that Tommy came to believe that the the arts, the arts and everything that they were doing was a way of showing that they um what their soul is, that they were were, there was a way to prove that they had a soul. And this was in relation to when he finds out about the referrals, it to him in his mind it made a connection. Well, maybe, you know, that's how they'll verify if we really are in love is that they'll have our artwork as a way of proving that because we do have a soul because that's, you know. So he kind of puts those two and two together. But in the book, it feels like, because they had, going back to part one slightly, there was more talk between Kathy and Tommy about like, oh, I heard this and little clues about Miss Emily, little clues about Miss Lucy, little clues about Madame, you know. And it gives you that sort of childlike perception where they're trying to piece together little clues of information and just being very curious. But as a as a reader, you are also kind of mindful of these things. And 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 that carries on to the second part where a little bit more is revealed. And it leads him to believe in us, the audience, too, that maybe there is some truth to this. Maybe that is what this gallery is. Because the gallery is a source of mystery in the entire book and in the film too. But I just don't think it had the presence as much as it did in the book. Or at least I didn't feel it as much. It kind of would just come and go. But I, I, I don't know how you would work that into a screenplay. I'm not saying I have the no, answers with, to that. but
0: It's something maybe you could build up with time. And I feel that time is the essence of mm. so much of this. The fact that a book is something you can take your time with and read right. it at your own pace. And it, it stretches out and becomes, by the time you're midway through, you're you're fully immersed in that mm-hmm. world. Mm-hmm. And the screenplay just has to really cut to the core elements of each little scene. And that, that's why it really just seems to complement the book for those who enjoy it, as opposed to maybe working perfectly as a film. And I think that's been the reception that came from it. There's, there's some outstanding... I'm so glad we've discussed this one. There's so many outstanding moments in the film and I especially Mm -hmm. think Keira Knightley's performance was one of her best but there's so much more that could always be in there I think and and we're we're talking about this with the hindsight of knowing that this is essentially a Nobel Prize winning book Mm -hmm. as opposed to at the time it was considered just a a good work of fiction.
1: Yeah did it win the Nobel Prize? Well the the author
0: won. Oh gotcha. You, You win it for your your work life body of yeah work. your your, your life's over
1: your yeah I, I just yeah i just felt that um that was such a driving mystery and i don't think you you know as when you're adapting a book i don't think you should think like everything has to be in there you're absolutely right because they're two very oh, completely yeah. I'm, I'm glad
0: a lot of stuff was cut yeah. uh, of course i didn't want to watch a 10 hour so of course i, I wanted to see i i was really interested as a writer in figuring out what were the building blocks of this story because Mm -hmm. if you ask me on the once i finished the last page of never let me go the book what are the building blocks of that story it would be really hard for me to explain that because it was it was all so narrative it was also
1: stream of consciousness
0: exactly just you're just being told things by kathy and then you have to think, well, what were the building blocks of that story? The reason why this is a good screenplay is because Alex Garland made it look easy and made it look like maybe there's things he'd missed or stuff that could have been included. Yeah. Clearly, he was trying to th- say, what is the core of this story?
1: Uh, watching it, I was like, yeah, of course that's, that, that's, of course that scene. Of course that scene. You're right. Cause when I finished reading it, I was like, how the hell is it, did this, did this, Okay, I was very curious for the film now. I was like, okay, I'm very curious to see how they did this because I wouldn't even know where to begin with this type of story. So, yes, I I, I do feel that, again, I think if there would have been enough, maybe if I had maybe longer time between reading the book and watching the film, my experience of watching the film might have been different. But since I had just read it, I was slightly more critical of like the missing stuff and missed opportunities. But... Yes, I, I, I do agree. It's it's a monumental task to take this body of work and to try to, and for what they did, I think that was such an impressive adaptation. And I think it plays to Alex Garland's strengths just because of what he's done afterwards with Ex Machina and Annihilation. I mean, the, the sort of brainy science fiction stuff that he likes to write and direct and the themes and the type of um, recurring sort of ideas that he has about not just um, science fiction but just life in general there's this sort of existential meditative and it's not even angst it's just this meditless existential
0: we've moved on from angst now that that's something i think we had in the 90s and the early 2000s and now i think we're we're in a very different generation and we're hearing voices that are not just uh actually that's something that pretty much came up in Watchmen, and what Watchmen was as a as mm-hmm. an original graphic novel it's all about that angst it's mm-hmm. all about the what's that is the true. point and this story is saying imagine if you were condemned to die when you're in your 20s right how unfair is that how much more is there to experience think of all of the things a single life encompasses how big and vast and wonderful a life is and then you're cutting it short that is a crime that's what right. you know that's underlying the heart of this it's 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 sci-fi only to the degree that it's trying to comment on something mm-hmm. uh, on that kind of theme mm-hmm. of where do you find all these moments at your and now we're getting into part three yep well it's the remainder of the book it's 30 pages of screenplay again it's not that much time. And we have to learn everything about Kathy's life as a carer. The fact she needs to care for Ruth for a while. Mm-hmm. And then Ruth will suggest that they go and, and see Tommy. I th- I do think the film did very well at, at doing the dramatic moments in part three. yeah. In the, that early part of part three where yeah. Kathy meets Ruth again and they haven't seen each other for a long time. And then them seeing Tommy again, and they haven't seen each other for a long time. That you do feel as an audience that time has passed and they have changed, and the situations they're in. It's like seeing young people with cancer. Essentially, you know, seeing yeah. seeing people who are too sick for their age is is the initial sense you get, and you don't necessarily get that in in just the narration because it. Kathy is so used to it that she's just describing it to you as if it's just completely normal. Mm-hmm. But when you're seeing it on screen and you see the disinterest from the doctors and the nurses and everything because they just are treating them as, as tools, Right, they're the tools that they're going to get the organs to give to the real people, doing air quotes, real people. You know <laughs> that. And yet for us, these are the real people. They're, they're our protagonists. They're the ones we care about.
1: Yeah, and I think it's just reaching the end of the road is what puts everything into context because you're not just meeting uh, friends that haven't seen each other in a long time, but you're meeting friends that are at the end of their life and you know what's coming. And that I think adds that extra level of um, nostalgia because it is coming to an end. You know, it's like when you're hearing the words of someone in their deathbed. It has more weight because their journey is about to end. And it, and it's the same thing with this story. And I felt that in the book and in the film. It's just this, you know, there's this weight. And in the book, it's described as something you just don't really comment on. Yeah, you know? she's
0: she's trying to depersonalize it, distance yeah. herself from it. Um,
1: She's trying to not get
0: so personally attached to the people she's caring for. Yeah. And that is... Yeah. Fundamentally impossible. We know it's impossible. You can't be in such close contact with someone who is so sick and not be affected by it.
1: Right. And and she even says she's a she's a good carer and she actually in the script the the beginning of the script kind of goes into this in a little bit more detail. They took it out from the film, which I kind of wish they had kept in, but she talks about how she's a good carer and how you know, a lot of people, you know, buckle under pressure and they let it get to them because then they, they can't really, they just get really emotional and then they just go on and become donors themselves because it's just too much having to witness this over and over. But she's quite resilient and it, she says that it does affect her, but she's able to move on and to carry on with the job. And and I think we see that in the scene where, actually this was very well portrayed in the film when she's taking care of that one young lady who is just going for her first donation i think and things get complicated and she's told the news very nonchalantly that she didn't make it and we don't really get a big emotional response from her there's just a moment of like she processes and then she just continues on with the paperwork and that completely encapsulates everything that kathy was saying in the book which is she's she's learned to kind of work with the system Mm
0: -hmm. there's there's also this network of carers that share information with each other Mm -hmm. and in the screenplay to avoid that need of having characters just come over and say oh do you know how ruth is doing you should go see her." her they have that death uh be the catalyst for her seeing ruth's image on a computer screen and then seeking her out which i like because it quite clearly makes it a character choice Kathy could have said she didn't know her but yeah. she's she's drawn to that image and she wants to go and find her and then become her carer
1: and another good um, screenplay little bit here uh, that might be really helpful for writers is the whole show don't tell obviously she cares about Ruth a lot and then the one way that very subtle way that they portray this is that when the nurse tells her that they have an extra bed and she doesn't have to go home, she says, "Oh, I only live like less than two hours away." And the nurse says, "Yeah, it's better to wake up at your own in your own home." And Kathy agrees. But then after, when she goes and uh, is talking to um, uh, Ruth, Ruth just says, "You know, well, you got to go, blah blah." And then Kathy says, "No, no, no well, I was going to stay the night, anyways." You know, obviously, she's lying. She wasn't. It shows. her her care for for Ruth in in a very small little way, but it speaks volumes, I think. That's a sign of a good screenwriter, which is to show the audience through action rather than say, like, oh, I really care for you or whatever, or have the narrator say it like it's shown in an action in the the script. I do think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think in the film she sees Ruth, spends the night, and the next day she suggests that they go visit Tommy. In the book, it takes a while for them to get to it, that.
0: It does take a while. I think uh, Ruth. Ruth always planned. She wanted to find the right moment to bring it up. She'd already had the plan of visiting Tommy.
1: In the film, well, the
0: the idea is that in the in the screenplay, it's cutting right to the chase. Right. But she still introduces it as, "Oh, we should go see that boat." Right. Oh, and Tommy lives kinda close, we should also see him. Yep. They are young and I think that yeah. that way of introducing that what she wants uh, reveals a bit about her age as well and just how these two girls are still yeah. interacting with each other in this way. But I do think this is the part of the film that really gives us that, that uplifting moment that we crave as an audience, even though we're not going to get it from the ending. Is mm-hmm. just to see them reunited at, at Tommy's uh, mm-hmm. care facility.
1: Yeah. And I, I think, uh, you know, I think he's already done like two. And it shows, reveals a lot about the character too, because they've had the same level of, or the same amount of operations, yet they both in very different uh, health status. You know, I think Ruth is a little bit, obviously, much more sicker than tommy is and no i would say though is i feel it would have had more weight i think not just to have ruth uh, or have kathy be with ruth as her carer for longer um just to sort of build that bond again i but then i understand it's it's a two-hour film and you can't really do too much but nonetheless i think it would have carried some more weight and also it would add more to the relationship and also the part where uh, she suggests to her that she'd be Tommy's carer. That's not in the film. It's it's more about deferral, which is another element that I I, I, I yeah I would like to get your opinion on why that element was removed.
0: Well, there's a, there's a couple of things that I think were changed and are a bit more ambiguous. I think in the screenplay, especially that. Kathy and Tommy start sleeping together again while Ruth is still alive. And in the book, it takes it takes Kathy a long time. Ruth is, Ruth has died. Mm. And then, only then is she ready to actually start to be intimate with Tommy. And I think that's one of these things, that it's about speeding it all up, mm-hmm. but without maybe considering the implications of who we want these characters to be. And I think... Kathy comes across as more respectful of Ruth, whereas in the screenplay they are more in conflict, which makes sense because, as Alex Garland said, he was trying to find all the conflict in this story. He was trying to draw it out. Right. But there is something Ruth knows she's going to die. And I think the way she's portrayed in the screenplay as being much closer to the end of her life. I I think in the book we think everyone has more time than they really do, and in when you see it in front of you and you see how weak she looks and how others are, people are just dying after the first donation. It's a it's a real risk. Mm -hmm. Then it starts to make more sense that she's handing over that that option of the deferral to them because she knows she's not going to make it herself. The old Ruth, if she'd known there was a chance. And she was still healthy. Maybe she would have done it, but she she makes the right choice and she offers Tommy and Kathy that last chance to save themselves. And
1: that was one of the heartbreaking bits. Reading the book is when in the in the book it's it takes place in the car, pretty much the same scene, uh, but in the car, and it's just such a brilliant piece of writing. You know, just kind of kind of comes out of nowhere. In in the book, they're having sort of some you know, because in the book it's more nuanced in terms of like what's going on with their energy in the room. She's constantly talking about the atmosphere, which is, you know, the vibe they're feeling and and it kind of comes out of nowhere in the book when I read it, it was like, Whoa, that's not what I was expecting because you're used to Ruth being a certain way. And you're used to her being like deceptive and then all of a sudden she's good again and then she becomes deceptive again. So there's always this back and forth. But in this scene she's just the most vulnerable we've seen her completely honest and uh this is her redemption and it was something that i I, I don't know if i was necessarily expecting which was a pleasant surprise and i was very moved by the whole scene when i when i read it i think the question of souls is coming
0: up sooner rather than later now we're we're getting towards the end of the episode and Mm -hmm. this is definitely one of those things that demonstrates that the these clones are very aware that they are real humans because why would you need to make peace if you were just some artificial matter that just Mm. was only for lab purposes for harvesting the organs ruth wants to make peace with her friends before she dies Mm -hmm. that's a very human thing and that's very forward thinking and thinking of an afterlife thinking of whatever it is or maybe not an afterlife maybe just knowing the finality of life and just wanting to set things right before leaving the world mm. whatever it is it's a very powerful concept and yeah. shouldn't be shouldn't be disregarded i think it really in all honesty i can't see a world where this would be allowed to happen at all i i think if if there were clone like people who were acting like people we probably would want to figure out whether it was ethical to kill them first rather than start killing them for their organs and then figure out the ethics which is what happens in this world.
1: Yes, I would hope so. Mm -hmm. I mean, the world's kind of weird but yes, I would hope that I suppose uh, there was have no that social collective. media back when right. these
0: clones came around, though, in the 50s and 60s. So <laughs> it could have all been covered up a bit better.
1: Easier to hide. And again, it brings up a theme that I think Alex Garland likes to talk about or likes to explore a lot, which is what makes a human a human. And what what is the definition of a soul? This is something that's explored in Ex Machina, too. You have this artificial intelligence. Here we have another artificial intelligence i'm starting to see a little trend here annihilation flirts with that as well again there's like a pattern in his work here that i'm starting to see which is um existential meditations as opposed to the angst i mean there's a little bit of angst in there and certainly that's shown when tommy has that emotional uh freak out at the end there but yeah let's
0: let's just discuss this ending and Mm -hmm. just let's lay it to rest i i think we've We've covered everything that we need to. And mm-hmm. just that climactic moment. When I was reading the book, yeah. that was my wow moment. I couldn't mm-hmm. put it down. I had to keep reading, had to find out all the answers, and had to see if these characters made it through. Mm-hmm. In the screenplay, something similar does happen. You you feel like it's 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 win or lose for them. They have this one shot and it's interesting watching these characters and they know they only have one shot, but they almost can't believe it's that. It's that weak of an attempt and all it's really going to buy them is a couple of, even if there is a deferral, it's not some sort of exemption. It's a deferral for a couple of years of extra life. Mm -hmm. And you realize just how they're asking for such a small thing and no one can grant it to them. And Mm -hmm. that's where this power is behind it. Having Madame talk about the gallery, is very important, Miss Emily. I think the quote is that we weren't looking to see into your souls. We were looking to see if you had souls at all. Right. That was very heartbreaking, you know, because then that's when you realize just how vastly off the mark they were thinking they could get this deferral. They were never even considered people from the beginning. That's how far off they are.
1: Yeah, and just showing that there's there's very few people out there that care about them and the implications that that has to them. And just that's where the resignation of their fate comes in. I think Kathy just is probably the most level-headed of all the characters, and she kind of has this inner resiliency where she can adapt to any situation without much of a fuzz.
0: She picks up on it faster than Tommy as and, well, which makes... For nice dramatic pacing, I think is,
1: and contrast between two yeah. characters because I think Tommy is just much more of an emotional character, and and it it shows two different reactions to the same information, um, and and both I think can people can identify to either one or both. Uh, I think the ending, yeah, when I read it, that was the, that was the the moment for me was yeah that was a page turning like oh oh wow oh my god like this is everything's coming into focus now
0: and you briefly think for a moment there's something else that's going to be revealed yeah that you hadn't seen coming You, you you've been thinking all the way through there's no way out of this just in those pages you think maybe there is for a moment
1: yeah it's a hope that's doesn't last very long and also it all just happens within the last maybe fifteen pages of the book. Uh, the last in in the film, it kind of plays out a little bit more structurally in tune with other scripts, where you know you have the last twenty minutes being the climax of a film. And but nonetheless, there's a lot to be revealed in those last pages. There's more revealed in those pages than in the whole book in terms of. The plot in terms of you know what what exactly is going on
0: yeah the world itself you can tell that a lot of the screenplay is built on things that are inferred just in that last scene because Mm -hmm. it that goes on for many many pages in the book so much is explained to us and then for the screenplay it needs to be really streamlined but lots of the things we find out from that are scattered around in just how the world is that we that we see
1: yeah and I think that was very effective. I'm really glad about the adaptation because it was very faithful. And even though I do have my my, my, my reservations about a couple of choices and I have certain ideas of what could have made it maybe a little bit more impactful and because the book, that was very profound experience. I watched the film and it was, it was a, it's a really good film, but it definitely did not match what I went through reading the book. I think it was... Yeah, and it was, whereas
0: Silence, for example, I felt yeah. that it it did what the book did to me. It, it made it, it come alive. was in a alive. completely different format, yeah. yeah. But it, I felt a lot of the things that I felt Absolutely. reading the book in, in the film.
1: I completely agree. It felt very much like it. all of a sudden the book was 3D and it was like now in color and like now I could really see everything. And this was in, in terms of like... Yeah, I, I felt like the book was definitely a much more... Because just of the medium and just the way it, it, it's but not... But this, this, is, this yeah. is
0: something that we could... you We can say, well... But then you just remember how many bad adaptations of books there's been. And this is still in the top 10% of oh, adaptations yeah. of books. This by no means is a bad just adaptation. it shows how difficult adapting a book well is. Because yeah. you can just think... this countless examples of books that have just been just ruined by having executives and people different people fighting over stories and things like that or just basically books being completely different to the film for example the lord of the Rings series which Mm. great films great book it's clearly not an adaptation of just the content of the book it's so much more of peter jackson himself Mm -hmm. so this was definitely an adaptation of the book Mm -hmm. very little added by alex garland actually the very last scene which we'll talk about Mm -hmm. does add some stuff i would like to just talk about that very quickly Mm -hmm. the ending of the book has Helsham has disappeared there's a sense of lostness sense of there's a lack of direction for kathy tommy will die so she goes to norfolk and mm-hmm. that's where this, this beautiful ending comes. And in the book, she says, I imagine this was the spot where everything I'd ever lost since my childhood had washed up. I'd see it was Tommy, and he'd wave, maybe even call. And there's this vision of him coming over the hillside to mm-hmm. to come back to her. Yeah. And actually, in, in Alex Garland's screenplay, none of that was in it. Yeah, I think they realized the huge mistake they'd made by taking that stuff out. Mm-hmm. But he also had added his own... It was like he had offered an alternative way of looking at the the whole story in his ending. Because his last lines for Kathy were... I've been given my notice now. My first donation is in six weeks. Mm-hmm. What I'm not sure about is whether our lives have been so different from the lives of the people we save. We all complete which is the the term they use for die. Mm-hmm. And none of us really understand what we've lived through or feel we've had enough time. And they kept that in the film as well, and they combined yeah. both of these endings, and I thought that really helped because yeah. what ultimately is this about? It's about someone who loses their partner.
1: Yeah, and I think in the book it doesn't... I mean, it's implied, obviously, she's going to go through the same thing. She doesn't get like a free path she's gonna eventually
0: there's less focus on it though it's
1: yeah there's no mention of it of like definitely not that specific that she's a month away from starting that's definitely new in the film and i thought that was a nice little touch because it feels right it's just like yeah it sounds like you know she's old enough and she's probably going to start that same process too because that is in the book when she's talking about her daydream and how it just stops at tommy just showing up on that field and I mean, it's a very, you know, it's a very melancholic sort of ending. Very, um, I don't see it as bleak though. I just see it as sort of faithful to those circumstances that these characters, and it's a very sobering ending. You know, no one gets to, they all die. Oh, one thing I did want to mention that I thought the, the film did brilliantly, that it used its medium very well, and it's not in the book, is when um, they, we are, were actually shown when Ruth dies. That does not come up in the book. I mean, obviously, they it says that she dies, but...
0: You no, know, Kathy isn't there to see it.
1: Kathy's not there, but in the film, we're literally in the room. The audience can be there. Yeah. As they're cutting her up, and I think it was brilliant what they did. It's one of my favorite scenes. It's You see them all, you know, she dies. They finish the operation. They get the organs, put it in the bag, and then it's just procedural work. There's no ceremonial... Type of like because they're not died. trying to save the patient.
0: No, they're trying to it's, kill the patient. Essentially, it's a, yeah. They, it's a,
1: it's a slaughter, and it's like they're just cutting meat. You know, they're just cutting meat for burgers, like they're they would with cattle. Uh, they take down the X rays, and everything just seems like procedural. Like uh, it's very cold, very cruel. Very, it, it just encapsulates the whole idea in one visual. And it just really hit home for me when I saw it. I was like, wow, it really just puts it in perspective what what it is that they're doing. Um, so I thought that was really brilliant that, that, that he did that.
0: I'll just add one of my comments on just the symbolism of never let me go. I Towards the end where Tommy uh, is having his breakdown, realizing there's no deferral and they stop the car. I love that symbolism of them holding each other and falling to the ground and just mm-hmm. being together, but knowing it's it's all over. And yeah, that was a very nice piece of symbolism.
1: Yeah, and in the film, it's beautifully portrayed by the the two actors. I really felt that moment between the two of them. Um, oh, yeah.
0: Any any final comments from you on?
1: Uh, no, I, I I really loved the book. I think it's one of the best books I've read. Yeah, I remember when you texted me and you were like, oh, you know, you're reading the book, which page are you on? And I was like, I didn't want to say it was boring. So I used a much more uh, sophisticated word. I said it's meditative, which it was. I mean, I wasn't completely bored. I was, I was just barely on the journey. So I think, and then you sent me that picture of the library where it said, someone left a note on yeah the book. so
0: that was um it was in the recommendation section of, of Romans in Pasadena and they had you know all the, all of the staff right there recommendations for the for mm-hmm. the books yeah
1: so I'll, I'll pretty much say what the notes said to the audience to you guys who haven't read the book just yeah be patient with the book because it's not the most it's not a page turner right off the bat uh, but it, it is a great payoff I mean. It's a slow burn, but by the time you're in the end, all that subtext, all that information that you were given and you were storing, is just beautifully unraveled and wrapped up and asks all these questions and makes you think and feel and profound in profound and unexpected ways, I think. So I love the book. I think, the, I think Alex Garland did a good job of adapting a seemingly impossible, uncinematic piece of work and actually made it into something that I think is pretty good.
0: Yeah, and just congratulations to Kazuo Ishiguro on his Nobel yes. Prize because he is a phenomenal writer. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I look forward to to reading more of his stuff as well. Now nah, we'll. This too. is just the beginning. Awesome. That's it. Thanks. Cool. Thank you again for listening. If you enjoy the show and find that it brings you a lot of value, please do support us by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Podbean, following us on our social media, or by recommending us to your friends. Hopefully today's discussion helps you with your own stories. Thanks and goodbye.